This week's TribCast is sponsored by Methodist Healthcare Ministries is committed to health equity, striving to create more fair and just opportunities for all to thrive. Learn more at mhm.org. And Frio Valley Ranch is Texas's premier hill country golf experience, offering 18 holes spanning over 7,300 yards with gorgeous panoramic views of every tee and green. For more information, visit FrioValleyRanch.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TripCast for September 9th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week I am joined by our environmental reporter, Aaron Douglas. Hey, Aaron. Hey. Hey. And our higher education reporter, Kate McGee. Hey, Kate. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. So, you know, we are in the height of election season and our politicians continue to argue with each other and say a lot of the things we've been hearing for the last six months. So I've decided instead of doing a political podcast today, we are going to go deep into the policy, the wonkery. So Aaron, I'm going to start with you. And we're going to talk about how basically we are at the five year anniversary of Hurricane Harvey, a little bit past it. And, you know, it this hit Houston brought massive flooding along the Texas coast and the cleanup continues in some neighborhoods and, and the damage continues. But you had a big story this week about a different aspect of that that I think has been you know, pretty undercovered, the mental health impact of Harvey, along with the mental health impact of natural disasters brought upon by climate change around the state. And you did this by talking about the experience of Dana Jones in Houston. Tell us a little bit about what she has been going through in the past five years since Hurricane Harvey struck. Sure. Um, so Dana Jones, I met her in July and she is a 61 year old uh, resident of a neighborhood in North Houston called Melrose Park. And when Hurricane Harvey hit her home, Every neighborhood in that subdivision was completely flooded. I talked to residents who said there were several feet of water. It came really, really fast. A lot of people did not have time to get out and evacuate. She was one of those people. And when the water started to rise, she moved her truck out to a park that was sort of elevated, an area that they didn't think was going to flood. Mm -hmm. um, but then as she was coming back, walking back from the park, which is a very short walk, but just about a block or two back to her house, the water started rising extremely quickly up to like her waist. And by the time she got back to her house, uh, her entire home had essentially been flooded. And she ran in, grabbed a couple things, tried to get her dog, Gigi, out of there. And Gigi was freaking out, couldn't get the dog out. So she she ran out of the house. And then luckily a neighbor came by in a super high clearance truck, like not like a pickup truck, like much like higher than that. Mm -hmm. And he told her, run in, get your dog and then let's go. And luckily they were able to be rescued uh, by that neighbor. So from that experience, she was then housing insecure for many months until she could finally get back into her home. And then she, like, you know, thousands of other Houstonians at that time 
had to have their entire home gutted because black mold will get into your house after the waters come in like that. And so she lost pretty much all her belongings, had to start over from scratch. And the problem for her has been that she's on a fixed income. She doesn't really have the money to repair these houses. She's also a little bit older and, you know, some people in her neighborhood are younger, they're contractors, you know, they were able to make some of their own repairs even without the government assistance. But she was denied government assistance because in a previous storm uh, during Hurricane Ike, she had received federal governmental assistance and then uh, had not maintained flood insurance as required by FEMA. If you didn't maintain your flood insurance and then you're flooded again after receiving assistance, then they won't give it to you a second time. Mm. So that has left her in a very difficult position, which is that her home still hasn't been elevated or repaired since Hurricane Harvey five years ago. She's tried to appeal these decisions. And then also (laughs) since Hurricane Harvey in 2017, Houston has also been hit by Tropical Storm Imelda, which you know, was, wasn't nearly as bad as Harvey, but, but was very intense in some areas of the city. And for her, the water came up to her home on the outside a few feet and it seeped in a little bit. It didn't flutter out like Harvey did at all. Um, but she was worried that there was some damage from that. She had some people come and look at it, but then they were like, we can't really do anything right now. And then a couple years later, her pipes burst during the winter storm uh february 2021 and then when her pipes burst and her den flooded they ripped out the walls and they did find that the mold had come back but she thinks it came back during tropical storm imelda so the net effect of all of this is that dana has been just emotionally exhausted since 2017 she was actually in the middle of a property dispute at the time she got that settled but then harvey hit And then, you know, since then, it's just been one thing after another. She can't get assistance and it's taken a toll on her emotionally. And she's experiencing a lot of anxiety and depression. She talked to me specifically about how it's hard for her to eat. It's hard to find motivation to clean the kitchen, but she's really trying to fight against this because she has seen, you know, people in her neighborhood, her friends and family going through similar things. And she's seen how you know, they've become so bitter from this whole experience. And she kept telling me over and over, she doesn't want to be bitter. She doesn't want to be skinny. She wants, she doesn't want to cry when it rains. She wants to get better. And so she's really been trying to treat her anxiety and depression with uh, medication and then some counseling, but also it's just the day in day out relentlessness that I saw from her in emailing the general land office, emailing her local representatives, you know, trying to get anybody to listen to her and come out to Melrose Park, which is a subdivision that they really feel like they've been forgotten through all of this. So I just found that story very compelling and uh, wanted to highlight some of these symptoms of mental illness that people are still living with years later after this traumatizing event. Yeah, you know, your your story about her kind of driving her car to, to higher ground is such a familiar one from Hurricane Harvey. I mean, I remember being there in the couple weeks after and talking to people. And there's one person, I don't even remember his name, but I remember just sitting there talking to him outside of his house. Um, and he told me how he had like driven to a dollar general parking lot um, that felt like was it was on higher ground and then ended up being stuck there with like, 
no drinking water or anything else for, you know, 36 hours or something. And just like all those people who had these kind of horrible things happen to them, you know, when you were driving around, you know, a lot of times when there's a natural disaster or a shooting or something like that, as a journalist, you're there and it's a small number of people um, and a large number of media, right? And, but right. with Hurricane Harvey, it was such a different experience because it was, had happened to a, a region of, you know, millions and millions of people. And so many people who had these kind of insane wild experiences who their stories never got out. And, and, and so all that to say is that, you know, um, uh, the experience of Dana seems to have been something that a lot of people went through. And you cited this stat in your story that kind of knocked me out of my chair where, you know, an admittedly small survey of survivors in the Houston area, researchers did afterwards, found that 46% of the Houston area participants met the threshold for probable PTSD symptoms. So, I mean, if that scales out, we're talking about if not hundreds of thousands, then maybe even millions of people who are going, have gone through something similar to what Dana went through. Right. Right. And yeah, to be fair, that's, that's a very small survey and it was done with direct disaster victims, but there were a lot of direct disaster victims during hurricane Harvey, a lot of people who had to be rescued, a lot of people whose homes flooded. The other thing I think to point out on that particular statistic is that Researchers do find that in the years following the disaster, those rates decline. So presumably five years from now, you Mm -hmm. know, not as many people are experiencing symptoms of PTSD. They've found some sort of sense of recovery. Um, But you're starting with such a high amount of people that it's it's pretty interesting to contemplate and scary to contemplate. And the scientific literature that I kind of looked at, there are a couple of reviews of the literature on disaster uh, response and and mental illness prevalence and generally researchers find that around a third of the people who are exposed to a disaster like this develop some sort of symptoms of PTSD which which is a lot of people so and then yeah this is something that uh, climate researchers and mental health researchers are sort of ringing the alarm bells about right now uh, in the most recent intergovernmental panel on climate change report they uh, warned that extreme weather events, are being followed by increased rates of mental illness in the exposed populations and that you know this could have essentially catastrophic consequences on mental health of entire populations that are exposed to these extreme weather disasters yeah and of course one thing that you mentioned in the story is how uh multiple events can kind of compound or or make people more, more vulnerable to that and of course in houston there have been three 500 year floods in the past seven years. So this is a situation where that region, but also other regions around the state are feeling this in large part because of the, you know, uh, increased amount of disasters that are happening because of climate change. You talked to uh, Wayne Young, the CEO of the Harris Center, um, about kind of how they, you know, government funded uh, mental health authorities, that is how they are experiencing this. What did he tell you? Yeah, yeah. He mentioned that he actually started like in the weeks after Hurricane Harvey, which I thought was very interesting. And he got there essentially in the thick of it. And in the years following Harvey, he noticed that people who are being treated by his center and members of his own staff are sort of experiencing this increase in anxiety, especially during 
weather events like rain events. And when it rains, he's heard staff members be like, hey, can we close, you know, Mm -hmm. even if it's not even projected to be very bad. And so he's sort of seeing these symptoms of re-traumatization every time the Houston area experiences a storm. So what is there to be done about this? I mean, your story mentioned that getting access to mental health in Texas is not particularly easy, but I mean, obviously Texas can't stop climate change on its own. There's, there's environmental things and regulations that it could do, but that's, you know, beyond the power of the state government. So what, what ideas are people raising to address this issue? Yeah, it's very interesting. So a couple of different things. One thing is that there's an increasing movement among mental health professionals to become what they're called, what they're calling climate aware therapy, which essentially just means that therapists are taking time to think through how climate change is affecting their clients. Perhaps they've read the emerging literature on climate anxiety and eco grief, uh, eco anxiety, and they're going to use perhaps different tactics in their therapy sessions on their clients than they would otherwise, which I talked to a couple of therapists who have actually uh, done this and treated people who have experienced climate anxiety. And they talked to me through like the different ways in which they approach this with their clients versus, you know, maybe another uh, symptom or cause of anxiety. So that's interesting. That's one thing people can do is like actually seek out mental health professionals who are thinking about this topic. <laughs> um, and then another thing is that, Uh, What I found in the literature was that things that will empower you, like making evacuation plans, preparing for the next disaster, doing emergency response training, as I actually wrote about in the story, these are things that not only, you know, physically help you prepare for the next disaster, but mentally and emotionally reduce that taxing nature of the overwhelming anxiety. Because climate change and natural disasters, these are things that we have very little control over as individuals, right? But when you create collective power in a community, when you uh, actually take the time and the get the resources to make the plans and, and try to get some level of control around it, then that actually improves your mental health outcomes. Yeah, having that kind of agency to feel like you're not just completely out of control when, when the next uh, disaster strikes or anything. Right. Like you know, speaking of the next disaster striking, I, I, this is somewhat of a change of subject, but, you know, we are now deep into uh, hurricane season. We are past the time of year when Hurricane Harvey hit. What's going on this year? I mean, it feels like we haven't really had any, any kind of threat of hurricanes uh, come around in Texas this year. Yeah, you should really knock on wood if you're going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the thing about climate change is that um, climate change has not been shown to actually increase the frequency of hurricanes and tropical storms. What it does is increase the intensity of those storms. And so where you might have have the same number of hurricanes on average year after year, which is sort of what we're seeing, um, they are going to drop more precipitation, have stronger winds than they would have otherwise. And so the reason is basically because, well, one of the reasons is because as the temperatures in the ocean warm, then like more water and energy is able to absorb into those storms. And then they end up being stronger than they would otherwise. Secondly, um, storm surge is also affected by climate change because of sea level rise. And so you actually get more flooding. Um, so that's the that's basically the reason uh, we haven't actually found in climate science that, um, well, not we, but <laughs> climate scientists have not found that 
climate changes increase in the frequency of hurricanes, although they may increase the frequency of other severe weather events. Um, hurricanes is not one of them, but the severity of those storms is increasing. So for example, during Hurricane Harvey, um, scientists can actually do attribution studies, which they entail basically running a model of the storm with climate change and without it. And then they sort of extrapolate those results to figure out how much climate change contributed to the increase in precipitation. They found that between that Hurricane Harvey was eight to 19% more intense in terms of precipitation than mm. it would have been otherwise without climate change. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, um, as and as you noted, the, the year is not over. So hopefully the uh, the luck we've had so far will will continue um, until we get out of this hurricane season. Thank you, Aaron, for um, explaining to this. Let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, providing health care coverage to more than 6 million Texans in all 254 counties. And Texas 2036, building long-term data-driven strategies to secure Texas's prosperity through our bicentennial and beyond. For more information, visit texas2036.org. Okay, so the Texas legislature is entering 2023 with a lot of money to spend. We've discussed this on a prior show, a surplus that's currently estimated at $27 billion, but that could actually get even larger in the future. The asks for that money have already started to come in, and one that emerged this week was from the Higher Education Committee, um, possibly overhauling the way that the state funds community colleges. A legislature-appointed commission is recommending that lawmakers kind of shift the way they fund those community colleges it, more toward a way that kind of incentivizes, incentivizes those colleges to you know, promote student success. Kate, you have been watching this commission. You had a story about this week. I want to talk about the recommendations, but first I want to talk about what the situation is right now. Can you tell us about the three ways that co community colleges in Texas get their money and how some of that presents challenges and problems for those schools? Sure. So this has been the system for decades. Basically, you have your local property taxes bringing in money, student tuition, and then state funding. And the way that the state has done this is the legislature basically, you know, takes all these different things into account, enrollment, um, you know, programs that are being offered at different schools, and they set like a pot of money aside for community colleges each legislative session for the next biennium. And then these formulas come in that, you know, also take into account enrollment and how well schools are doing in these different success points, graduating students, getting students through their first year of college, et cetera. And they just divvy up the pot of money that way. The way this whole system creates a few problems. One is when you have a pot of money and then divvy it up among colleges, you create almost a system where schools are competing against each other because there is a set number of or amount of dollars at the end of the day. And mm -hmm. so it means that there always comes up to be winners and losers um, in that system because it's based on there's a cap on how much money will be spent or will be you know divided among the schools. The second part is when you have property taxes playing such a big role and over the years, while state contributions have remained kind of flat, property taxes and tuition have 
made up a larger, are making up more and more of the pot of money. Property taxes are not equitable across the state. And so some schools are in taxing districts with higher property values and more property in their areas that they can get money from. Other schools are not having as much uh, property taxes. And so that creates an inequity. And so it ends up every year where you kind of have schools competing against each other to get funding. And it creates uh, especially problems for like your smaller colleges, your rural colleges as well. And there is just an inequity that's kind of been built in that um, the state is now saying, let's just re- you know, think, rethink this entire thing. Yeah, it's kind of the some of those more property poor areas are often some of the areas that might need the most help too, right? Because there may be less economic opportunity or, or you know, people who need kind of workforce retraining in those areas compared to a place like Austin, where there's, you know, really extremely high property values, but also a lot more jobs and a lot more opportunity for people and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what is the proposal? So what the so this commission uh, was appointed by the governor it's made up of a couple lawmakers college pre- community college presidents and business um, people um, and they are basically saying instead of having this set pot of money and then deciding how to divide it up let's create a formula or a system where the schools are, are determined how much money they get based on how well they're doing educating their students and the two main kind of factors they're proposing the state look at are how many students are actually completing a program. And that's not just, you know, your standard associate's degree. That could also be a short-term credential that takes a couple months or a year to get um, a workforce credential, or it could be an associate's degree, or it could be, you know, high school students taking college courses in the dual credit program that's become increasingly popular in the state. And then how many students are we transferring to four-year universities because they want to continue their education to get a bachelor's degree? And have the schools, um, instead of having a set pot of money, have the calculation be made based on those, how successful the schools are, and then that determines how much money these schools get. And therefore, it incentivizes schools to better think about, okay, how are we going to get these students through a program, into a program that's going to be successful for them and makes them, you know, also hopefully better work for the students so that they are getting into programs that make sense for them. They're getting the counseling they need because everyone is incentivized to see that student succeed at the end of the day. So they want to create this kind of outcomes-based funding model. And then accompanying that, they're saying, okay, let's have the state decide kind of a set limit on property taxes, how much we think should be collected. And if schools can't meet that, we'll create a a bar. And so we'll fill up the bucket with state money. So everyone's kind of on an equal playing field and everyone can kind of have that guaranteed yield, which creates more consistency and knowing how much you can plan for because you know how much money you're going to get. So it kind of levels the playing field for those smaller schools that can't just bring in as much money from their property taxes. Right. It's, it's, it's some of this is kind of changing the economic incentives for, for schools. Right. I mean, you know, there's there's some indications that programs that provide students with counseling, whether it's counseling on what courses to choose or, you know, just kind of attention where as opposed to 
putting, you know, 200 kids in a, in a big class without much interaction with your professor or anything like that might be a more economical way for a college to run a course, but it's not the best way to get students to graduate or advance in their, um, in their education careers. But if you tie that funding to the success of the students, not necessarily to enrollment or other things like that, then, then maybe you're incentivizing these colleges to provide those services in a, in a, in a stronger way and everything like that. It's an, it's an interesting idea. My question is how interested will the legislature be? You know, I mean, when, when I covered higher education back in the day, uh, before I went over to the dark side and became an editor, you know, one of the big complaints that I heard from community colleges is that their enrollment is kind of inversely tied to the economy. And when there's high unemployment, when the economy is doing poorly, that's when people enroll in community college because they recognize a need to retrain or or get a credential that might help them get a job. And then when the economy is doing strongly, the enrollment goes down. But the problem with that, of course, is that when the legislature, when the economy is doing poorly and enrollment is going up, the legislature has less money to send to things like community colleges. And when the legislature tends to have more money, they look at the community colleges and say, well, your enrollment's down. So why do we need to send you more money? Like, what's the what's the point here? So, I mean, how likely do we think it is that these community colleges, these advocates for this change can can successfully kind of break that vicious cycle that they've, they've complained about for years? there is some appetite um, in the legislature to shift and rethink what to how to finance these schools because I think there is a large clamoring from the business community in particular that we do not have enough workers who have the skills that they are needing in their particular regions of the state and the state the higher education coordinating board the higher education commissioner has been kind of rethinking you know, how we look at and use community colleges to be the gateway to have people get the skills they need to get them into some of these jobs where we see huge um, hiring issues. I think, you know, this commission has a couple of very, um, you know, Brandon Creighton, who chairs higher ed and, and public ed, which is kind of morphing next session. Um, you know, he ha- is on this committee and has buy-in and is you know, broadly supportive of where the higher education commissioner is taking higher ed in the state. And I do think, you know, the commissioner told me that if all of these recommendations go into effect, and this is kind of preliminary, because there's still a lot to be decided, and the legislature is still going to have to make a lot of decisions based on these recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be about 600 to $650 million extra for the next biennium to fund everything. Mm-hmm. Um so I think, but I, I do think that there is an argument to be made that is um, a palatable one for the legislature that if we do not have enough people who are getting some kind of credential, whether that be, a, you know, a short-term credential, a bachelor's degree, it doesn't, I mean, to a bachelor's degree, but it doesn't have to be a bachelor's degree. If we don't have more people getting some of those short-term credentials, that's going to hurt our economy. And so that I think is something that a lot of lawmakers can understand and can kind of get buy-in here. So I do think that there is, I mean, there's a meeting on Monday to discuss 
kind of the bat the reaction to this but so far it's been pretty um pretty positive uh, reaction from business leaders and from community colleges and um, the legislature generally. Yeah, you know, I wonder also whether the community colleges have been a little bit of isolated from the political pressure and kind of backlash that maybe the four-year universities have faced a bit more of, um, you know, from the Republican Party these days. I mean, do you, do you find that to be the case? Absolutely. I mean, I think they... Um, can brand themselves as being um, crucial to the workforce. And so they can kind of pitch themselves in an economical way. And not that obviously universities are also crucial in many ways, but they, they are dealing with different types of programs. They are dealing, you know, when you have these short-term credentials, you're dealing with many like hands-on programs, kind of vocational programs that, um, just do not have the politics don't bleed into that as much as, you know, a critical race theory or kind of um, liberal arts program might bring to the, the stage. There was another recommendation that you mentioned in your story about boosting funding for the Texas Educational Opportunity Grant Program, which is a state funded program that provides financial aid to eligible students attending community colleges. There's a similar kind of Texas grants, I believe, um, for four year universities as well. And a, a kind of striking number that the, the, the program is so underfunded that they can only provide grants to 28% of the students who are eligible um, by the rules set by the legislature to, um, uh, to receive this grant. I mean, how, how is that possible? How does that happen that they've gotten so far behind on, on the funding for this, this, this program? I mean, it's just priorities and how much money the legislature puts in, puts in every biennium. I know they, last session, because we had all this rush of COVID money, they were able to put it in an additional hundred million dollars using federal stimulus funds, but that still um, only got us to 28% of students who qualify. And it's not even, I mean, the average is about $1,700 a semester to public community college students. So that will cover tuition for some students, but the way that tuition is set up in the state, you have your taxing district and then your service district for a community college. If you live in the taxing district, your tuition is much cheaper. But if you live in the service district, so you you know maybe live outside of Houston, but you're served by you know the Houston Community College system, you are paying a high. You're technically out of district, and so your tuition is higher. Mm -hmm. And so the amount that is being designated isn't even enough to cover tuition in some cases. So this group is saying we need to the, we need to invest in this program so the students have the money to even show up and 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 attend college period um, they said a, they said the state should set a goal that 70% of qualifying students are served which would be obviously a huge jump from 28 to 70% um, but they think that not only that that right now you can only use these grants for academic programs and credit pr programs that give you college credit and they say we should be allowing students to use this for the non-credit programs, for your short-term credentials to get them through and get them finished. Um, and so, you know, alleviating finances as an issue um, to help more people get some kind of post-secondary degree. I mean, you know, lurking behind all of this is that the state has this 60 by 30 goal where they want 60% of the state to have some kind of post-secondary credential by 2030. They are um, pre-pandemic, we're not on track and the pandemic did not help. And so there is a lot of 
kind of thinking about how do we do this? How do we get more students um, through to meet this goal? And I think that, you know, the commission, this is kind of on parallel tracks with that. The commission is, was thinking about these goals and how they could refinance the system to better help more students kind of get through it and get into the workforce. All right. Well, thank you, Kate. I think that's all the time we have for today. But thank you, Kate. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, Frio Valley Ranch, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, and Texas 36. We'll talk to you all next week. Join us for a one-of-a-kind political party at Open Congress at the Texas Tribune Festival, presented by PepsiCo. A full day of free, fun events happening Saturday, September 24th in downtown Austin. Hear from Texas music legends, sports superstars, state and national leaders, and many others in a day full of talks you won't find anywhere else. Learn more and RSVP at tribfest.org slash opencongress.